0: Continues our series exploring some of the key research topics within the Sustainable Care Programme through the lens of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this podcast, our focus is on transnational care. The transnationality of care has been a major theme examined by myself, Angela Kilkey, Professor of Social Policy at the University of Sheffield, and my colleagues Louise Ryan, Michael Loring, and Obert Tawadzira within the Sustainable Care Programme. We have explored this from a number of perspectives, and a key one relates to the spilling over across borders of the informal care done within families in the context of increasing international migration and mobility. It is that perspective on transnational care that we focus on today. I'm joined in the podcast by two of the pioneers in what has come to be called Transnational Care Scholarship. Professor Loretta Baldassare and Professor Lara Merler. Loretta is Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at the University of Western Australia and she's also Director of the UWA Social Care and Ageing Living Lab, SAGE. Loretta has published extensively on transnational mobility with a particular focus on families and caregiving across the life course. Her publications include Transnational Families, Migration and the Circulation of Care with Lara Merle, Families Caring Across Borders with Baldock and Wilding, and the award-winning book Visits Home. Loretta is also an international partner within the Sustainable Care Programme. Lara Moller is Professor of Sociology at the Catholic University of Leuven, Belgium, Her research is focused on the transformation of family relationships in a context of mobility and geographical distance. Lara studies these questions through two prisms. Firstly, intergenerational solidarities in transnational families. And secondly, children's lived experience of multi-locality in situations of separation, divorce and family recomposition. Lara is co-author with Loretta on the widely cited book, Transnational Families, Migration and the Circulation of Care. So Loretta and Lara, welcome to this discussion on COVID-19 and transnational care. I'd like to organise our conversation around three themes that are dominant within the transnational family care research and which the COVID-19 context make even more salient. And those Three themes are technology, proximity, and remittances. So let's begin by looking at technology. And I was really struck at the beginning of the pandemic by a blog Loretta and colleagues at SAGE wrote called Physical Distancing, Not Social Distancing. And this blog seemed to be about the the message around learning lessons from the experiences of transnational families for society as a whole during COVID. Loretta, would you like to tell us more about what motivated that blog and the key messages that you wanted to get across within it? Thank you, Magella,
1: And thank you for the invitation to be part of this podcast. It's lovely to be here. So um, we wrote the blog because we wanted to make the point that lockdown requirements of physical distancing do not have to result in social distancing. So in Australia, the narrative at the start of the pandemic was very much we need to social distance. And we thought it was really important to draw a distinction between physical distancing and what we call social distancing. And social distancing reminded us of the experience of transnational families. So families whose members are separated by distance, they manage to stay socially connected even though they are always physically distant. So in fact, it's critically important, isn't it, for people's well-being that despite lockdown, physical distancing, that they have social connection and that this physical distancing does not result in social isolation. Of course, there's always a risk that it will, but we were inspired to write the blog because transnational families research teaches us that you can be physically distant and socially connected across distance. So some of the things we um, highlighted in our blog were that migrants of all ages show higher rates of digital literacy and internet access, and they are often what we call early adopters of technology. In this case, this is adopting technology used for the purposes of staying in touch with loved ones across distance, so what we call ICTs, right, Information and Communication Technologies. And they're early adopters of this technology because they're highly motivated to learn how to use technology to stay connected. You see this even with older people who usually have the lowest levels of digital literacy we find that older migrants are much more capable technology users than their peers, who are not migrants, because of this motivation. There's nothing more motivating than wanting to stay connected to your grandchildren, right? So if your grandkids are living in another country and you can't easily visit them, then you're really motivated to learn how to use technology to stay connected. So transnational family members... um, Often deal with the challenges of physical distance by working out effective ways to stay connected, to stay in touch with each other across distance. And so we highlighted some of these these key ways because we thought they could be nice, like tips for people, Uh, perhaps give people some ideas about how to do this. uh, We call it caring across distance. So, for example, you find some common features in um, transnational families. Care practices or connection across distance. One really important one is that family members tend to figure out a routine um, because having a scheduled day and time and a and a set of you know expectations about how to stay in touch with each other across distance really it helps in in several ways. It helps members of the network feel re- reassured that they're in that they can be in touch. It reduces any anxiety and it also reduces the amount of time and energy that you have to put into organising everyone. If you have a routine, you know, people know when they're going to be connecting. Obviously, these routines need to be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances. But what you see in the research is that long term transnational families generally follow some kind of routine. For example, they might have a weekly family Zoom call on, on the weekend when people are available. There might be a daily text message, even just an emoji. And what's really increased in recent times is the use of family chats, you know, like like on the WhatsApp platform, for example. Perhaps also checking Facebook posts every other day. And these routines create what researcher Mirka Madianow calls a sense of ambient co-presence. This is The feeling that you're constantly surrounded by your support network, even if they are physically distant, because that routine becomes familiar and reassuring. What we also find is that during a crisis, uh, for example, when a family member gets sick or is having a particularly difficult time, then all these forms of staying in touch increase in an effort to give the person a sense of, you know, being given extra care and support, even though they're physically distant. And finally, there's, you see a kind of what we call a ritual pattern of staying in touch, and this might be the video or phone call for birthdays or special parcels sent by post for special occasions. People may even invent additional rituals that wouldn't have been common if they could visit each other, for example, celebrating name days or making an extra big deal of small anniversaries. So what all these different um, patterns of staying in touch, routine, crisis and ritual show us is that even though people are physically distant, they can remain really strongly socially connected. And that's very important to people's sense of well-being.
0: Those are really valuable reflections, Loretta. It would have been really interesting to follow the research on how Families which are not transnational have used technology in the context of COVID and whether similar patterns have been established. I wonder, in light of those reflections, can we consider transnational families' caring relationships as COVID-resilient, therefore? Or is that an overly optimistic reading of the realities encountered by these families? I wonder, Laura, do you have any thoughts on this notion of COVID resilience amongst transnational families?
2: Well, there is a wide consensus amongst social scientists worldwide about how much the COVID crisis acts as a catalyst, exposing and revealing social structures and inequalities in an unprecedented way. Well, the digital divide existed before the pandemic. But with physical distancing, social media and digital platforms have become crucial for the maintenance of family ties, as Loretta has just explained. And that is also the case for local families. However, studies show that digital vulnerability, which is a notion that not only involves lack of access to digital tools and platforms, but also a lack of digital literacy, is a reality for large sections of the population in countries also like Belgium or Australia. So in Belgium, for instance, nearly 40% of the population is in a situation of digital vulnerability. Technology not only allows family family members to care for each other at a distance, for instance, by meeting online and exchanging advice or providing each other emotional support, Members of transnational families can also participate in caring exchanges by coordinating responses to the care needs of their relatives. They can, for instance, touch base with other relatives to raise money or to identify who can take care of hiring a nurse for a sick elderly parent abroad. But the problem now is that the pandemic is hitting the world globally. It disturbs health systems, labor markets, and social protection systems in very different ways. We're in spring 2021, and there is currently a sharp contrast between Israel, where life is going back to normal, and India, which is facing a major health crisis at the moment. So it is very difficult in those unknown and unstable contexts to coordinate support from a distance. And this generates increased stress and feelings of guilt and powerlessness. Actually, in our work, we have identified time as one of the key resources to participate in care exchanges in a transnational context. People need to be able to put time aside from work and from their local family and social lives to communicate with their distant relatives. This is particularly crucial now, as we know that crisis situations usually lead to increased demands and desires to stay in touch. But lockdowns and telework have created a new context where activities that usually took place in distinct time spaces family, education, work, leisure, they are all taking place now in the time space of the house. Colleagues can contact you at any moment, children might pop in during a professional video conference, and transnational family members are also likely to call at any moment. Now this is true for men and women alike, But mothers, in particular, are paying a heavy price as they bear the brunt of homeschooling and domestic work in addition to paid work. Many of them struggle to combine all those activities and must on top also reinforce their support to the distant relatives they have already supported before the pandemic. On the opposite side, those who work in professions identified as essential in the COVID context, like nurses, for instance, accumulated long working hours and may have struggled to find time to contact their relatives, which also deprives them from the possibility to receive comfort from them. So transnational families have developed routines and and tips and habits to overcome the distance and care for each other, which can actually be a lesson also for local families, but they are placed today in a very stressful and difficult and complicated context which makes it very difficult, actually, for them to continue to engage in those forms of support.
0: Thank you, Lara, for those caveats and important um, reminders of the, the limits of technology, but particularly in the context, the very challenging context of COVID. I think a really important contribution within the transnational family care literature has been to acknowledge the multifaceted practices employed within transnational families. So you know, technology is is part of the story but it's only a part and proximity, physical proximity through for example visits have always been understood as another part of that set of practices that transnational families employ to exchange care. And this takes me on to the second theme that I think we should discuss, because obviously the restrictions on crossing borders during the pandemic are likely to have been highly challenging for transnational families and potentially for the exchange of their care. So let's move on to think about proximity and the ways in which that has been constrained in the context of the pandemic. Before the pandemic, scholars were dealing with this issue of borders and the challenges that borders presented. And Loretta, Lara and myself worked together to produce a special issue On the theme of transnational families confronting borders. So I'd like to turn now to Lara and ask her, um, similar to the question that I asked Loretta at the beginning, kind of what inspired this um, initiative to put together a special issue around transnational families confronting borders?
2: Well, we designed um, this special issue before the pandemic, Um, but the questions that we raise have taken on a major importance now that we did not suspect actually, when we started to work on that special issue. Um, This is a special issue where we argue uh, that people are increasingly confronted with what has been termed the immobility regime. So for years now, uh, governments have been responding to mobile populations, including the potentially mobile, with the policies and rhetoric of closure, entrapment and containment. And they have been motivated variously by desire to assert their nation-state sovereignty, to protect the labor markets and welfare states, to exclude the terrorists or racialize others, and to get reelected. So we're now facing a situation where borders are closed also to protect local populations, but from from a pandemic now. Um, So there are a lot of um, similarities and parallels to make between the current situation and, and, and the points that we're raising into this special issue. And also to think about future consequences of this pandemic. Once borders reopen, will people be allowed to circulate again, or even maybe circulate more than they could um, in the past? Or are governments going to take this opportunity to close borders even further uh, than before the, the pandemic? So in this context of, of uh, immobility regimes and, and and closure and entrapment, uh, what the special issue asks is where do care and family relations fit in such processes? Um, how can... F- people from transnational families who have care duties and obligations and who also want to take care um, for their relatives, including by crossing borders. Where where does that fit? How much recognized are them? And and what kind of uh, additional barriers are they confronted with? So this question is addressed in the special issue through a series of articles that collectively examines implications of those border closures for the circulation of care amongst uh, migrant and refugee family networks. In the context of what we refer to in the special issue as immobilizing regimes of migration. Now, these regimes emerge from a combination of state immigration policies around migrants' entry, settlement, and social, economic, and political incorporation, and also um, from hegemonic constructions of migrants and migration. These immobilizing regimes block the physical mobility of some people while granting highly conditional mobility to others. And this results in situations of enforced and permanent temporariness and lack of ontological security with people not being able to make plans for the future, uh, not knowing how they can react, for instance, to an emergency situation. So the term immobilizing in particular highlights the immobilizing consequences of those regimes not just for people, but for the trajectories of transnational care circulation over time. In particular, the capacity for short-term visits, long-term re- or expatriation, and circular mobility within family networks. Actually, in some cases, migrants can be penalized for crossing borders for caring purposes. Periods outside the country of residence can reset to zero the years of residence required to obtain nationality. So crossing borders for caring purposes can become a risk, uh, including for the own situation of the person who crosses the border and may entrap her in caring at a distance.
0: So obviously, as you said, uh, Lara, the special issue and the concept of immobilizing regimes that we developed within that predates the pandemic. And um, a key question that I've been really grappling with, and I know that both you, Lara and Loretta, have been too, as I have other researchers, is how the pandemic is rebordering transnational families and the mobility of care. And in that special issue, in um, the article we contributed to it, we took uh, three vignettes or case studies uh, from our own research that we felt um, could illustrate some of the challenges transnational families and their care exchanges confront in the context of these immobilising regimes. And I I, I think it might be nice to take each of those and and just offer some reflections on how those families might be faring in the context of of COVID-19. So I'll start with um, the case study or the vignette that I introduced in in that article. And that that was uh, Gita. So Gita's story personifies the scenario of follow the children migrants. Those are older parents, grandparents who are engaged in cross-border mobility to both give and receive care for family members who have previously migrated. These patterns of mobility are often dynamic and they shift from short-term visits to potentially permanent reunification. And such mobility, through the exchange of care it allows for, is essential for migrant families, especially when public services are minimal and private services are unaffordable, to help manage the challenges of balancing work and family. But such mobility also helps families meet culturally prescribed norms and personal desires to care themselves for grandchildren, for ageing parents. Gita's story, when I introduced it um, for the special issue, showed the impact of migration policies in the UK, which have made it virtually impossible for follow the children mobility. Gita, she is a 69-year-old widowed woman with Indian citizenship. She had come to the UK in 2015 on a six-month visitor visa. She had come to provide emotional support to her daughter on the sudden death of her daughter's husband. Gita's intention when she first came had been to stay only for the maximum six months, permitted for her visa, and then return home. However, while she was in the UK, her physical health deteriorated and she couldn't travel back home. She just didn't feel well enough. As the six month expiry date approached on her visa, her family decided to apply for their mother to stay permanently. The adult dependent relatives rule, the scheme which could allow Edith's children, who had all become UK citizens, to keep their mother with them in the UK though had been radically reformed in 2010 under a swathe of changes to our migration system. In the first place, the changes meant that people could no longer apply from within the UK. Gita, therefore, needed to return to India and apply from there. So, Gita returned to India accompanied by her daughter, who was an NHS doctor who had to take extended leave for the trip. Once, there, they began the application for the visa for permanent reunification. But they soon realised that Gita did not meet the criteria under the new rules. She wasn't currently sick enough, and even when her health deteriorated as it was expected to do, the rules stated that because her children, who were all white-collar professionals, including a doctor working in the National Health Service, that they were financially able to pay for substitute care in India. That's what they should do, care from a distance. The new rules therefore completely blocked Kita from relocating permanently to live in the UK to be cared for by her children. And her daughter, while still in India, was forced to turn her attention to making alternative arrangements for the care of her mother in India despite the fact that the family had a long-standing aspiration to have their mother live her old age with them. The plan was that her daughter and other family members would visit her mother in, their mother in India every few months. So I've been thinking a lot about how Gita and her family might be faring in the context of COVID. Visits by Gita's daughter would have been virtually impossible. NHS staff, many of them migrants, like Gita's daughter, were on the front line of the pandemic, working long hours with leave cancelled for a year or more. Travel abroad has at various points been banned, except for certain reasons, within which family reasons have been rather ill-defined. We don't know what constitutes a good family reason to travel. At the time of making this podcast, late April 2021, As Lara has previously said, India is in a deep COVID crisis. Yet her family can't travel to care for Gita and they can't bring her to the UK. So that was one case study we introduced in the special issue, which I think the context of COVID makes even more salient the impact that restrictive migration policies play. Loretta, you introduced May and Loth in that special issue. I wonder, do you have any reflections on how they might be faring in the context of COVID? Yeah,
1: thanks, Matilda. Um, So your example of Gita is um, an attempt to, as you said, follow the children mobility um, to get Gita to move to the UK. The example I talked about was about um, older parents or grandparents who uh, live in China and actually want to stay living in China, but they needed to travel in order to support their adult migrant children living in Australia to provide support for them so that they could both um, keep going to work and participate in the labour market. Um, in Australia, our um, labour costs are so high that people can't easily afford childcare and um, other forms of paid care. So there's a big reliance on informal care or family care and grandparents play a big role in unpaid care for grandchildren um, so that the The middle generation, the parent generation, can go to work, and in transnational families, you know that's no different. Only in their case, they have to fly in often, their family members to provide this kind of unpaid informal care. So uh, what you have is um, this extraordinary (laughs) um, phenomenon, which is happening more and more. where um, we call them flying grandparents or flying grannies. Um, um, adult migrant children pay for their parents to come over to Australia to look after their kids so that they can keep working. Um, the problem is that we this mobility is limited by various kinds of immobilizing regimes as um, Laura set out in her introduction. Um, In Australia, um, it used to be um, these visits were limited to three months only. Um, Because of increasing need and um, lobbying of the government, uh, visit visas have actually increased in length so that um, what you find often in families like Meng and Li Wei Um, the grandparents will actually come for up to 12 months um, and stay, um, which is very disruptive for their own lives back in China in this case, in the case study that I wrote about in the special issue. Um, But, of course, one year is only one year and childcare requirements continue beyond that. So what often happens is that one set of grandparents will make arrangements with the other set of grandparents in the family and take turns to provide this kind of informal care support so um, the adult migrant son will first bring over his parents for a year and then they'll go back and they'll be replaced by the adult migrant daughter's grandparents or parents um, so people take it in turns and, um, you know, the, uh, the other option, the one that Gita tried to um, access, which is to be a migrant themselves and resettle in the host country where their children are, is not really an option for Australians either because there are two possible screens, uh, schemes, rather, the non-contributory scheme which is um, relatively affordable, but has a 30 year waiting list. So you can imagine for most older people in that waiting list, 30 years is too long. It's just not um, practical. Um, And then we have the contributory scheme, which doesn't have a waiting list at all, but which costs a minimum of 50,000 Australian dollars, which for most people is just not affordable. So really, Um, migrating and settling is not an option for parent migrants or grandparent migrants. So they have to rely on these limited and restrictive visitor migrant schemes, which can be quite disruptive. Um, One of the issues in Meng and Li Wei's case, for example, and they're quite representative of other kinds of grandparent visitors, is that Really, their lives are back in China. Their social support networks are back in China and they become entirely dependent on their adult children in Australia for their, all of their needs. They don't speak English very well. Um, so And this also raises um, the intergenerational element of technology and transnational family care. Um, so they also rely on their adult children to facilitate their access to technology, to allow them to stay in touch with their networks back in China. Um, and that's another dimension, I guess, of the challenges to transnational families that Laura talked about earlier. Um, you know, often um, older people in particular need facilitated access to technology use, and you see an intergenerational dimension, and that becomes particularly relevant to grandparent visitors in the case I've just described.
0: And Laura, you introduced the case study of Salia, and what about her circumstances and how it may be impacted by COVID?
2: Salihah well, Saliha has a quite different profile from um, the case studies that, that you and Magella are presenting in the special issue. Um, she personifies the struggles of the female migrants from the global south, who are formally and informally employed in the domestic care and cleaning sectors in the global, global north, which are um, widely featured in the global catch literature. Saliha, she migrated from Morocco to Belgium in 2009, And this mobility resulted in her entrapment in a precarious situation uh, where she alternates and sometimes combines short-term, low-paid, formal and informal jobs. And this is still the case now that she has access to permanent residency. This entrapment is not only socioeconomic, it is also physical. She has left her children in the care of her aging mother, uh, but it's extremely difficult for her to cross the border to visit her children and her mother in Morocco on a regular basis. So she's 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 trapped in a long-distance caring relationship with her mother and children. Um, the barriers she faced result from her positioning in the Belgium institutional context, which limits her access to the resources that are needed to provide proximate care. Throughout the years, she has faced financial and temporal barriers. Her low-paid and often undeclared jobs did not offer sufficient means to send remittances and finance regular long-term visits, nor uh, did it grant her access to long-term paid leave schemes. Um, So it's difficult for her to set money aside and it's difficult for her to set time aside um, to visit her relatives. In addition, her occupational precarity negatively impacted on her visa security, which added further risks to her mobility choices. Now, if we go back to the pandemic, um, Saliha also personifies those migrant domestic and care workers which have paid a high tribute to the COVID-19 pandemic. They have risked their health and lives to continue working in hospitals, retirement houses, including during lockdowns. Michael Fine and Joran Trun rightfully point out that care has come out of the shadows in this crisis and less visible and often forgotten migrant care workers and cleaners have suddenly become essential. So this, this is a crucial moment because it has put the spotlight on their precariousness, be it in terms of employment conditions, housing or visa security. But in this discussion, it is also crucial to take their transnational care relations into account. Um, so, together with my um, colleague, Florence de Gavre from uh, the UC Louvain, I already highlighted how much defamilization policies in Western countries are ill-fitted to migrants' care duties towards family members while living in the global South. In those regions of the world, social protection systems are highly unequal. They largely rely on family solidarities, and access to public health schemes and pensions is highly restricted. So the the schemes and and work-family balance schemes and facilities that are developed in the European context are not fitted for people whose care needs stem and are located in very different uh, contexts in terms of social protection and and health and, and, and pensions. Now, this has even been further exacerbated by the pandemic context, because in countries here in Europe, but also in the Global South, people have lost their jobs. And in those areas, most of them have not received compensatory financial support from the States. In countries like Brazil, the health system is also collapsing. This weighs heavily on migrants' workers because it increases The stress, uh, but it also increases their sense of duty to support their relatives, precisely at a moment when crossing borders has become impossible, even for those holding permanent residency. And maybe even more crucially, family reunion schemes in the north have been put on hold. So those who are already planning to bring their relatives to um, their residing country, uh, be children, for instance are currently stopped from using that option and and, and this is really a major problem I think that we need to be aware of as I speak now.
0: Lara when you were discussing Sonia you mentioned remittances and that's the, the third and final theme we want to highlight in this podcast. So the important role of remittances in transnational family care practice is well documented and You highlighted, Lara, the the difficulties that uh, Saliga has in sending remittances. But you also highlighted the the great need to receive remittances in many parts of the the world. Um, And often migration is a family livelihood strategy. Um, Mothers, fathers, the eldest sons and daughters go abroad in order to help families at home sustain themselves and the sacrifices that migrants make in the countries of destination to be able to send money back home are also well documented. So you've given some hints, Lara, when you were discussing Salia, about some of the challenges that might be experienced in the context of COVID, both for migrants' capacity to continue with remittances, but also from the perspective of families back home, the increased need that they may have to receive remittances. So I wonder, Laura, could you elaborate a little bit more on the challenges that you think COVID um, is presenting for remitting?
2: Remittances are key for families like, like, like the family of Salihah. And, and actually, migrants here have limited financial resources also prior to the pandemic, tend to prefer sending money back home than visiting. So they they, they somehow sacrifice also this possibility to be reunited with their family members, including children for some time, because they prefer to send money back home because this money is used for education. It's used for material needs, sometimes also for building or renovating houses for paying health bills and so on. So, so it, 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 it is crucial for families back home. Um, now with the pandemic, migrants are facing uh, loss of livelihoods. So their, their income is decreasing. So those who have continued working have kept their, their salaries intact. But those who are working in sectors that have been closed, I'm thinking about you know, cafes, restaurants, uh, the building sectors and so on. Some have been put on hold for limited amounts of time. So did many European countries' um, cafes and restaurants and so on have been shut. Uh, in Belgium, they've been shut for almost a year now. So this is confronting migrants who are highly employed in those sectors um, with financial, heavy financial constraints. Actually, the World Bank um, predicts that remittance flows will reduce reduced by 14% as a result of the pandemic. And this is particularly problematic precisely at a moment where, as I said before, economic and and, and social and health systems are collapsing in in some countries in the global south. So this puts increased pressures on migrants' shoulders because the expectations of their relatives back home to receive remittances might increase precisely at a time when migrants themselves are under stress. And they might also be tempted not to share their financial problems with their relatives back home uh, because they don't want to, to stress them or, or, or to increase the worries that they have. So, so, so yes, this lack of, of resources, financial resources, is going to create major problems, I think, for many families across the globe.
0: And much of the literature on migration and remittances focuses on flows from migrants in the global, well, let's call it the global north to the global south. But I always remember a chapter in the book that Loretta and Lara edited on the circulation of care and, and the chapter from Serebra Singh and Anua Cabral on boomerang remittances. And it was the first time I'd that concept and it, as I recall it, it was a concept they developed to capture the sending of remittances from middle-class families in India to support their their children who had migrated to places like Australia um, to to, to study, to try to develop international, global qualifications. So turning to Loretta, I wondered, do you have... Any thoughts on how that that those boomerang remittances from India to Australia and um, how that may be panning out in the context of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, um, well actually that allows me to highlight a couple of key groups who've been impacted particularly by the pandemic in Australia. Um I think unlike the European Union and, and some other parts of the world, Australia has been able to put up very rigid borders. So there's no travel. And this is impacting our international students who, like the uh, Indian y- young migrants in the chapter you mentioned, rely on support from home, the boomerang remittances, to make ends meet because they you know, tend to rely on temporary kinds of Uh, work uh, particularly in the taxi industry or or now the rideshare industry but what you're finding now with the pandemic is that international students still have to pay their fees they still have to pay for accommodation but all of those jobs in the hospitality industry that they usually have to help uh, make ends meet that Lara mentioned have all dried up they've all disappeared So uh, they are in, they have been in dire straits and they're not residents, they're not citizens. So the Australian government's financial packages that have been made available to other unemployed people affected by the pandemic in Australia are not extended to them. So, you know, my own university has had to activate care packages for students in distress And as Laura mentioned, you know, their families back home are struggling to stay afloat themselves, let alone find extra cash to send to their kids overseas. So the international student uh, population is vulnerable and at risk increasingly so during the pandemic, and they can't easily travel home because of Australia's travel blocks. The other relatively invisible group you know substantial numbers of young australian citizens who are living abroad and you know that's a bit of a rite of passage for young middle class people in a wealthy western country like australia they go off and have wonderful experiences in their youth and i think psychologically the idea is if you're struggling or if it gets too hard you just go home right But now with the pandemic, they can't just go home. And many young people are really struggling with their mental health and with, you know, making ends meet while they're abroad because their jobs have dried up. They're waiting to get on flights back to Australia and those waiting lists are long and um, unreliable. So we've heard lots of stories of, you know, people booking flights and then having to rebook their flights or having to book expensive business-class tickets. Um, But in actual fact, getting a flight is dependent on spaces in our quarantine system, which are limited and increasingly limited because we keep having quarantine hotel breaches, which makes the government worry and revise their quarantine regulations and it affects the number of quarantine places we have available. So this usually extremely capable and resilient group of young people, travellers abroad, have suddenly become quite vulnerable group who's at risk because of the pandemic.
0: So at the beginning of this discussion, I asked the question whether transnational families caring practice are COVID resilient, um, a a term resilient that Loretta just used. And clearly they are not, as we've heard. Um, And COVID is presenting particular challenges for the exchange of care across borders. Challenges which are exacerbated according to underlying patterns of inequalities and vulnerabilities. But because of the dominant construction of families as nationally bounded, um, you know, we tend to understand families as, as 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 groups that live in the one nation state um, and that don't cro- don't exist across borders. I think that their ex- their experiences haven't really been highlighted much during COVID in the you know the political. And general discourse around COVID. So I wonder if you had a key message, one key message for policymakers in relation to transnational families in the context of COVID, what would that be? So Loretta, I'll turn to you first, The key, a key message to yeah. signal to policymakers. Thanks, Majella. It's it's tough to just pick
1: one. But I, I think currently I'm doing most of my research in the Sage Lab on, on older people and aging. And I think what's very clear to us is that policy is still very much defined by nation state and even local service provision. Um, so in aged care, for example, aging in place is the main policy narrative which is really important and the idea behind aging in place policy is that you have lots of good local supports to support people as they grow older to age independently in their own homes the problem with that policy is it tends to overlook the important role of distant support networks and in overlooking the role of distant support networks it has completely overlooked, for example, the importance of technology. So you find that access to technology and the internet. So you find that there's no policy currently in Australia governing access to the internet in residential care facilities uh, for residents. Now, COVID has actually raised our awareness of this gap, this policy gap, because one of the big critical issues during the lockdowns is that people in residential care who are already extremely socially isolated, are even more socially isolated because of their vulnerabilities. And they're definitely the population who need to be protected from infection. So they are really in need of access to the internet in order to have social connectivity despite physical distancing, which is how we began this podcast, right? But we don't have policy to govern it. So many residential care facilities are what we know what what are, what are called black spots, they actually don't have internet connectivity, people might not have landlines even in their bedrooms, in their facilities, but just more generally I think we need to look at technology policy and access and we also need to look at the potential and important role of distance support networks both to transnational families but also to local families because what COVID has shown us is that even local families who live approximately still need to have physical distancing and so therefore rely on technology for social connection.
0: Thank you, Loretta. a really important area for government attention globally. Lara, if you had to choose one area, what would it be? To
2: give a message to policymakers on. Um. Well, I, I fully agree with the recommendations of, of of Loretta and I also agree with her that this is a difficult question because there are so many things that need to be done. But just really focusing on on, on transnational families and their the importance of, of moments of physical co-presence because we, we know these are moments where um families reload their ties. And it's extremely important in this context of, of pandemic. And I think every local family now which is facing this so-called social distancing is is becoming aware of how important it is to be able to, to be with physically with your, your your loved ones. So I would I would focus on, on those travel bans and restrictions. They are likely to continue for some time. But in those travel bans, in many countries, there are exceptions for those who are able to demonstrate their need to travel for legitimate reasons, and this can vary from one country to another. But I would encourage policymakers to think carefully about transnational families when they define those legitimate reasons. Family reasons have been listed by several countries, including my own uh, Belgium, but the definition of family reasons remains vague and unclear. It's very difficult for people to know if their reason for travel will be considered a legitimate family reason. Um, so so it's very difficult to know from what point is travel for family care needs considered legitimate. A visit to reconnect and just exchange support, is it legitimate? Um, a visit to provide hands-on care to a secretive or to welcome a newborn in the family, for instance. So I would stress the importance of, you know, clarifying them and taking really the reality of transnational families into consideration, and also the importance of building a harmonized list internationally because different countries have different systems, and it's very difficult to navigate and reconcile them. And and I would also really want to mention the urgency. Of processing family reunion applications, it, it's very difficult at the moment to get all the documentation. Also, already to to put up an application is, is is extremely difficult at the moment. But for those in the end who succeed in putting up the application, it's extremely stressful um, to be facing this this, this this hold or this this this. Um, slow down into um, the processing of family union applications. And we're going through extremely stressful times, and I think there is no need to add the stress of waiting and uncertainty upon the shoulders, not only of the parents, but also the children and the grandparents who are waiting to be reunited. So
0: there's clearly so much work to be done in terms of policy to recognise the particular needs of transnational care in transnational families. To end on an optimistic note, because I think it's always nice to end positively, I was really struck in March 2021 um, by one of our UK government ministers, the Minister for Transport, when he was discussing the possibilities for lifting international travel restrictions. He used the fact that more than a quarter, so that's almost four million, Of children living in the UK have at least one parent who's born abroad. He used that fact in an interview to justify the need to allow travel. And I think that was a really important acknowledgement from a UK government minister, (laughs) the first time I'd ever heard it, that families and their care do indeed spill across borders and unconfined within a single nation state. And so just as Lara mentioned, and um, uh, John Toronto and Michael Fine's comments that COVID has brought care out of the shadows, perhaps, and just perhaps, it has also contributed to bringing transnational care out of the shadows. So on that optimistic note, I'd like to close the podcast and thank very much my colleagues Loretta Baldassare and Lara Merla for offering their reflections on how COVID nineteen is shaping and reshaping transnational care and family solidarities across borders. Thank you both.
2: Thank you very much, Magella.
0: Thank you both.